Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue our foray into Paul's understanding of faith and Torah with Galatians 3, 1-9 and 23-29. We discuss the relative roles of faith and practice in the drama of salvation and wonder whether finding God is like waiting at the bus stop hoping the God bus will roll by. We notice Paul's appeal to the faith of Abraham and ask whether others can be faithful to God without knowing Jesus. And we wrestle with Paul's idea that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free. It's a beautiful idea that comes dangerously close to erasing both cultural difference and systemic injustice. What do we do with that? Thanks for listening. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I am doing really well. We're in our next to the last Bible Worm episode of this narrative lectionary cycle. Can you believe that? I actually kind of can believe that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we get to spend it with Paul. Yeah, Paul, our good friend. Mm -hmm. He's such a zealot. He is. How old do you think Paul is? He seems, he's like, I'm picturing him like 19. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that age where it's just like, you are very passionate, you realize that you have some power in the world, you are still a little bit of a black and white thinker, Yeah, haven't experienced a whole lot of nuance. Well, I think he was probably somewhere between like a contemporary of Jesus and like maybe 10 years younger than Jesus. Okay. And so, I don't know, he might have been born around 10 and this letter was probably written like in the early 50s. So he's like, he's like my age. He's like in his 40s. Yeah. You know, for real, when I when I'm asked to do something and I doubt my capacity to do it well, (laughs) I have started not that this really applies to Paul, it doesn't. But I've started to say to myself, like, now, Amy, if you were a middle aged white man, you would not be questioning whether you could do this. Like, (laughs) tap into your inner middle aged white man. and Just talk. Just do stuff. Well, Paul maybe could get rid of a little bit of his uh, middle-aged maleness and have a little less confidence. But, I mean, he's he is... He's going for it. He puts things out there in a way, you know? And I, I you got to respect that at some level. Like, he just yeah. puts things on the table for people to deal with, and then we got to deal with them. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> and here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're dealing still with dealing it. with this stuff. We're dealing with it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Amy. Well, today we are... Continuing on in Galatians, we're in chapter three, picking up in the very next verse from where we were last time. Mm-hmm. And we're reading the very beginning of Galatians three and one to nine, and then the very end in 23 to 29. I don't think there's any background we probably need to give, is there? I don't think so, since we're just picking right up. All right. Well, Paul's going to start out here. I mean, he is in full Paul mode in Galatians three, chapter one. Mm-hmm. I'm reading one to five, and I'm in the CEB. You irrational Galatians, who put a spell on you? Jesus Christ was put on display as crucified before your eyes. 
I just want to know this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so irrational? After you started with the Spirit, are you now finishing up with your own human effort? Did you experience so much for nothing? I wonder if it really was for nothing. So does the one providing you with the Spirit and working miracles among you do this by you doing the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? All right, Paul is, I mean, clearly unhappy with what's happening in his his churches in Galatia. Can you help us just start to think about, like, what is he upset about? I mean, coming from the context of our conversation last week, we saw a situation in which people who were coming to the Christian community from the Jewish tradition were, it seemed like really wrestling with how do they interact with people who are coming to the Christian tradition from not the Jewish tradition. And so they don't keep kosher. They're not circumcised. Like all these societal structures that are within Jewish law that the Gentile community does not keep. That There really was a question of how, how do these things interact with each other? And Paul comes out hard on just leave the law behind. Yeah. Right? That's the context that I see all of this in. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And so we talked last time about the churches in Galatia seem to have a faction, maybe that has come from the Judean churches in Jerusalem mm-hmm. and elsewhere like we saw a couple of weeks ago in Acts 15, who are trying to tell Gentile believers they need to follow the law in order to become Christian. That is, there are some legal markers or mm-hmm. even ethnic markers, I, I mm-hmm. guess. As, the Torah is such an interesting, like, do you think of it as a legal code or do you think of it as a cultural marker or is it some right. kind of combination? Right, right. But yeah, you're exactly right. And Paul's being trying to be very clear that for the Gentile churches in Galatia and elsewhere, the Torah does not have anything whatsoever to do with your salvation or your justification before mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. In verse two, he says, d- he's asking them, did you receive the spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Mm, I have questions about that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, my question is, What do you think he means by receive the spirit? Because if you understand it as like the moment that they felt changed, the moment that they moved forward into this faith, then isn't that sort of inherently the moment that they believed? Like, what do you think he means by received the spirit? I mean, I think when Paul says received the spirit, he means that quite literally in the sense that Paul thinks when the spirit moves in a community, like certain kinds of things happen. Speaking in tongues has been the example that gets mm. used. Mm-hmm. You can see the signs of the spirit working in the community. Mm-hmm. And I so I think the question that Paul's asking is, when did that happen for you? Did it, did it happen by your, you know, keeping Sabbath every week and you're, you know, being circumcised and following the Torah? Or did it happen when you heard the proclamation about Jesus? Mm-hmm. To which his answer is obviously it, heard, it right. happened when you heard the proclamation about Jesus. Right. You can't sort of ease your way into the spirit by reading Leviticus, seems to be his point. Which is an interesting way to go about it, to say, like, if you were really trying to determine cause and effect, I don't know, to say it was only that last thing that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was the whole cause and you can get rid of all the stuff that came before it. I mean... In some ways, as we've said, like, it's silly for me to argue with Paul. Paul's really not talking to me. Yeah. But we spoke numerous times reading Luke about how you could ask these questions referring to Jesus as a Jewish man and pointing out that it was in carrying out various Jewish rituals that much of the story happened. Yeah. You know, that 
sacrifice and annunciation and being at the temple when he was a tween and going to synagogue and reading the Tanakh and debating what you can and cannot do on Shabbat, caring for the dead, hospitality. Like, you could totally say that that was all intricately a part of this story. But yes, the last thing that happens in the story is the last thing that happens in the story. So if... (laughs) Yeah. So... I don't know. It seems surprisingly, Bobby, I'm not compelled by Paul's argument. (laughs) (laughs) It is so surprising. But I mean, it's interesting, you know, because I mean, you're coming from to this text as a as a Jewish Jew. Right. And so your investment is different. But I don't think it's that unlike what an early Jewish Christian would have been thinking. Right. Like. Yeah. They come from that same background and now they say, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, which is a step that, you know, you don't make. But everything else you just said, I think they probably would have thought. And so it's kind of interesting to try to to think about their perspective. Like keeping the Torah is the, you know, that is the tilling of the ground that yeah. allows the yeah. spirit to, yeah. to sow the garden or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a couple of pieces of nuance in this verse too. So the way it is in the CEB, the question is, did you receive the works by doing the works of the law or by mm-hmm. believing what you heard? So did you come in by doing or believing? Is mm-hmm. that sort of what the NRSV yes, says? that's exactly what the NRSV says, yeah. So the problem with with in translating it that way, and which is a totally reasonable way to translate it, is now believing is just a parallel to doing. And then the, it sounds like instead of like all the works of the Torah that you're supposed to do, now there's still... There's just one thing you're supposed to do, which is believe, but it's Mm -hmm. still the doing. Like, Mm. there's still a thing you have to do in order to receive the spirit. Yeah. Is that kind of how that reads to you? Yeah, I think think that makes sense. I mean, reading this verse, I kept going back to previous conversations we had about what does belief mean? And is this belief or is it faith? And like, what actions are associated with this? Is this really just like a thought in your head? Yeah. Or does it look like something in the world? Yeah. Is there action associated with it? So in some ways, I feel like I'm drawing out a flip side of the challenge that you're bringing out. Like you're saying something is still required. Belief is required. Yeah. Right. And I'm wondering, is there any, does that belief actually require anything of you? I think that's a really important nuance that you've given there. And so like belief as a cognitive activity, mm-hmm. like can mm-hmm. you say the creed or whatever, versus mm-hmm. faith as an act of trust, like you live your life based on this promise that you have been given. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to come up a little bit later in the conversation about yeah. what, like what did Abraham do, which we'll get to yeah. here in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I was reading Richard Hayes's commentary He was suggesting that the Greek there, which is translated in our translations as by believing believing what you heard, Mm -hmm. should really be translated from the message that elicits faith. That is, there Mm -hmm. was a proclamation made in your presence and the, the proclamation inspired belief in you. It's not that you chose to believe. Mm. It's that in that sense that God came in and through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were empowered toward belief. That does make a big difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it does make a big difference. If you read it the first way, you know, like, is it by doing the acts of the law? You can sort of read that as like, if you practice spiritual practice enough, you eventually will work your way into belief. Mm-hmm. So the Torah has like a pedagogical purpose in that sense. Mm-hmm. Hayes is sort of saying like, no, that's not the way that that would ever work. People can never work their way into belief. God has to kind of enter into the situation in ways that empower belief. 
I have this image in my head <laughs> as we're talking of like, I'm sure this is terribly wrong, waiting at a bus stop for God to come. Yeah. Is that really what we're talking about? Like you're just, <laughs> there's nothing you can do. You just, I mean, you go to the bus stop, but then you just wait. <laughs> yeah, that's I think we need it. We need another meme here. Yeah. The God bus stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Paul is speaking to people who have already come to believe. Yeah. And so the question is a slightly different one. Like, yeah. how, how did you first come to believe? Which is, well, I waited at the bus stop and then the bus came on and I got on it. Right. Yeah. But it's an yeah. interesting question if you're trying to read this about like, well, what should you do if you want to catch the God bus? Right. Like, should you just right. go stand at the bus stop and do, do nothing and right. hope? Yeah. Or should you try to do some of these spiritual practices that right. kind of train you to be a, like present to the spirit or, or however you want to talk about it? Yeah. 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 I like that. That's a great question. I would like to ask Paul that question. <laughs> you just waiting at the bus stop, Paul? Paul, we're going to write you a letter now. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask one more question about yeah, this? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So my translation has more of like spirit and flesh. Your translation didn't use the word flesh so much. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I just think it's, I don't know. I, maybe it's just not using my modern core. It's not using my modern categories for thinking about these ideas. But opening with my translation is you foolish Galatians. Yours was your, you irrational Galatians. Yeah. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. Yeah. Like that for me is as flesh and as irrational as it gets. Yeah. Like we are people with bodies. Jesus had a body. The whole story was enacted in and through Jesus's body in completely previously unknown ways. Yeah. I just think it's I, like Paul points to it like clearly. But I, I don't I don't know. I just uh I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, that question of like, what does Paul mean by flesh and spirit, I think is a good one. And I love what you're saying about the rationality and foolishness, because what Paul is saying is not a rat. Like, there's nothing rational about the act of becoming a believer in Paul's sense. Like, the spirit comes upon you and it sort of empowers you to belief. And that's not a cognitive activity. It's not a rational activity. Yeah. I think what Paul is talking about as irrational is if you, in verse four, did you experience so much for nothing? So like we came, we preached Jesus crucified to you. That empowered belief in you. You are now people of faith. Reading the Torah, following Torah had nothing to do Mm -hmm. with any of that. Mm -hmm. And already Christ was active in your community. Mm -hmm. Now people come into your community and say, Christ can't be active here unless you're circumcised. Mm -hmm. That's what's irrational, Mm -hmm. I think, in Paul's Mm -hmm. mind Mm -hmm. is, but the spirit already is working here. So now you're going to go back and put conditions on the work of the spirit? Like, that's ridiculous. Does that help at all? Yeah, no, I think it does help. That is, that's helpful. And I think it just, it points me back to the first question of like, when you tell a story about why something happened, how far back in the story do you go? Yeah. And so in the very next verse, he goes all the way back to Abraham who is, of course, the first person who has a covenant, a particular covenant for his descendants with God. Mm -hmm. So picking up in verse six, understand that in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are the children of Abraham. But when it saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, all the Gentiles will be blessed in you. Therefore, those who believe are blessed together with Abraham who believed. So first of all, can you just help us remember that story of Abraham that Paul is referring to and how that matters from a Jewish perspective? 
Yeah, so I see him referring to two different texts about Abraham. The first one in verse 6, the story of when Abraham he you know has believed God or trusted in God it was reckoned to him as righteousness that comes from Genesis 15 yeah. when God is you know Abraham has already left his homeland and has been you know traveling around and protected and amassing some wealth over time but is getting older and older and does not have a child and you know says so to God like I see I see I'm not going to have an heir here so you know all this wealth is kind of not super useful <laughs> to me and then God says to Abraham, no, 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 look at the stars. That's how many offspring you will have. And it says, okay, so Abraham put his trust in the Lord, even though he couldn't, you know, and it was reckoned to his merit, even though Abraham couldn't see how this was going to happen as he was getting to be quite an old man. And then the other text he's referring to is from Genesis 12. He says, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. It says all the families of the earth. Yeah will be blessed in you or through you or something like that. And that's that is at Abraham's original, you know, moment of calling to to get up and go from his homeland. We talked about that Genesis 15 text in the second episode of this season. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's a whole I think it's episode 202 that if people wanted to go back and kind of get caught up on that we had a whole conversation about that. Yeah. One of the things that I remember from that conversation, I'm wondering if you can just kind of remind us, is that idea of God reckoning to Abraham. Abraham believed and God reckoned it as righteousness. I remember that was connected to the the sense of like the merit of the ancestors. Merit of the ancestors. Can you just remind us a little bit how that is understood? I mean, there is an idea in Jewish tradition, not unlike Christian tradition, that we can't perfectly execute any of the things that are put before us to execute. And so we we rely in some way on, I don't know, I feel like it maybe Christians would call it grace. And the Jewish community calls it sort of the merit of the ancestors. Like there is this sense that there's almost like this spiritual bank account that has been built up over the generations of ancestors who, who believed with such ferocity in things that maybe seemed impossible that created such a strong relationship with God that we can sometimes, when we fall short, we can rely on God's favor that has been sort of built up through those acts of faith. I think that's really important to what's hap- what Paul's trying to do with this text too. You're pointing to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, which I think is exactly right. There is yet a third, as you know, God makes a covenant with Abraham mm-hmm, text, mm-hmm. which occurs in Genesis 17. And it's that third one where circumcision actually enters into the conversation. Yeah. And so the fact that Paul is appealing to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, both of which occur before the circumcision commandment, is important to Paul, which mm-hmm. is to say, I think something along the lines of, look, Abraham already had faith and God already was reckoning him righteousness before mm-hmm. circumcision ever mm-hmm. came to be. Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm reading that right? I do think you're reading it right. And I think it's kind of an elegant approach. Yeah. I was thinking as I was reading it, can you think of other analogies, like analogous, I don't know, relationships or covenants or ways that relationships are formalized that we can compare this to, that we can try to like get at what Paul is suggesting? Like I was trying to think, mm-hmm. like, would you say like there's a couple who are in love with each other, but they're not yet married, so don't have a certain set of obligations to each other. But we want to go back to that time before there were obligations that felt hard and when everything was just, uh, I don't know, like 
you're in that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. What do you? I like where you're headed. Like I'm having trouble sort of coming up with a concrete image. Yeah. But I really like where you're headed as I understood where you were headed, which is to say in that kind of committed relationship, especially a covenanted relationship like a marriage relationship, yeah. that it's not that the day you signed the marriage license, now you have a relationship. It's that there was a relationship yeah. in which you were committed to each other and you would have done whatever you needed to do for each other that mm-hmm. you then formalized yeah. by signing the thing. Yeah. But the the commitment precedes the formality. Yeah. And it doesn't depend on it. Like, I love my wife not because we signed a thing, right? I signed right. a thing because I loved my wife. Right. 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 No, I think that's a nice a nice way of putting words around that. I like that analogy. And, and so here, in both traditions, in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition, the point is... God already had a relationship with Abraham before Mm -hmm. God didn't enter into a relationship with Abraham because Abraham was circumcised. Abraham Mm -hmm. entered into the ritual of circumcision because God and Abraham had a prior relationship. Yes, I think that's right. And I don't think that, I mean, that doesn't make this an easy issue for me where we can say like, sure, you can go back to that point before you've made a real commitment and, you know. Because as you said, it is the commitment, the covenantal act comes from love, at yeah. least the way the way it's supposed to work. So to say now we're going to have love without any covenantal act, I don't know. There, there. I have questions about that. Yeah, but it's a it's a very interesting way of going about it. I think one thing that's interesting to me in the way Paul talks about this is in verse nine he says, "Therefore, those who believe are blessed together with Abraham who believed," and so. I don't quite, I don't have a fully formed thought here, but Abraham, who did not believe in Jesus, Mm -hmm. is the model of faithfulness here. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's an interesting opening there about, well, so what is the status of Jesus? Like, to what extent does one have to have faith in Jesus to be faithful? I think Mm -hmm. is the question that opens for me. Mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts about that? I know that might be a hard question just to toss out there. I mean, I am guessing that that's the only faith that Paul is interested in, is my guess. And I don't, I don't is know. Is the Jesus faith? Is the Jesus faith. Yeah. And again, it's really, it's interesting rhetorically how he, how he gets to this because, and so funny, I, I like go down the road with him for a while and then I'm like, wait a minute. But right after these stories, Abraham is called to do all kinds of crazy things by God and does them. I mean, he's called to sacrifice his son. It is not just a faith in your mind, yeah. you know, kind of thing. There's a lot of action in the flesh that is required, but there is no law at this point. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about, but I don't know. I mean, do you think Paul acknowledges any kind of faith now? Now that Jesus has already come, now that Jesus is an option, do you think that he would acknowledge the legitimacy of any faith in God that didn't come through Jesus? I kind of can't imagine he would. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is kind of a point of, I think there's a certainly a debate that one could have. And in, in my mind, one way of getting at it is that what matters is that you have, that you trust in God. And Abraham trusted in God mm-hmm. and therefore was faithful. Mm-hmm. And Jesus didn't have anything to do with that. Now, maybe Paul is saying Abraham is the only person who could ever have done this, right? And so we just skip from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Mm. But it is also possible, I think, to argue in the same way that Abraham is faithful to God without Jesus, so could someone else be faithful to God without Jesus. And that someone else's 
would be Jews who are descendants of Abraham who understand that the root of salvation, the root of righteousness is not following the law, but trusting in God. Mm-hmm. But I think in my reading, Paul is open to the possibility that someone could trust in God as a Jew, mm-hmm. follow the Torah in response to their tr- trust in God mm-hmm. and be righteous, mm-hmm. be faithful. Mm-hmm. The problem is if somebody says, no, following the Torah makes me right with God, then they I don't see. get it and I they see. don't actually trust God. They trust Torah I and see. that's not okay. That's a really interesting sort of expansion of that. The question I asked about the, you know, what happens when a co- at the point of covenant in a relationship yeah. is that this is getting back to the moment before yeah. covenant. But it's not that the covenant itself is a problem. Right. It's just that it's an expression of of the love that was already there. And so that can be expressed in different kinds of ways. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. I like that. Okay, so from there, the narrative lectionary is going to skip us down to verse 23, where Paul is trying to work out, so what is the Torah all about in the first place? Before faith came, we were guarded under the law, locked up until faith that was coming would be revealed, so that the law became our custodian until Christ, so that we might be made righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. First of all, what do you think Paul is saying? Like, how do you understand his un- understanding of the law? I think Paul is saying that humans needed like a, or Jews, I guess, people of Israel needed some kind of like babysitter figure until Jesus got home from the movies. No, <laughs> <laughs> no until, <laughs> you know, un- until Jesus Got there. Yeah. And the law functioned as that babysitter figure, but now is not necessary. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the term that's used there, that CEB translated it as custodian, paedagogos. And in Greek culture, that was a household slave whose job was to basically to walk the kids back and forth to school and make sure mm-hmm. they didn't get in trouble along the way. And that's what Paul's using to talk about the Torah. And so I think you're exactly right that the Torah was there because God knew that humanity in general was going to do crazy stuff. And so for one little bit of that humanity, God gave the Pythagogos to keep them in line. So the Torah becomes like a, I don't know, like a perimeter, a boundary ethic mm-hmm. that keeps people from just totally descending in, into chaos. So then in this view, after Jesus has come, is the spirit like our internal babysitter? Like we have a sense of those boundaries without having to have articulated boundaries in the same way? I think that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the way Paul would probably talk about it is now we are no longer children walking back and forth to school. We are Mm. adults who can, you know, who have developed some discernment. Like we, we are now grown up in the spirit. And so we are capable of making those moral discernments ourselves. I mean, okay, so maybe that's my question. Is it that there was some kind of inferiority of people in the past that required them to need law mm-hmm. that has fallen away? Or is it that this just happens to be when Jesus came, so now the law isn't as important? Or is Yeah, I think what Paul is saying, so now that faith has come, and in my mind, that is now that the Christ event has happened, yeah, and God has demonstrated God's faithfulness to the world, through the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus, that is all you need. Like once you have heard that story or or mm-hmm. witnessed that 
act on God's part. Mm-hmm. Now it's so overwhelmingly obvious that God has moved toward humanity that you no longer need anything else. So it's not, it's not just a happenstance. And it's not that the people before Jesus were inferior. Mm-hmm. It's that they didn't have the, that sort of what, what is to Paul like yeah. an overwhelmingly obvious testimony. So they, they couldn't have known. Yeah. But now that Jesus has come, people should know. Mm-hmm. People should be able to look at that and say like, oh, that's, that's what I need to know. Mm-hmm. So then Paul closes out this chapter with what is one of the most famous passages, certainly in Galatians, maybe in the New Testament in which he's trying to talk about the unity of the Christian community. Starting in verse 27, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Yeah, there are no social categories. Like what do you think he means by that? So my first thought reading it as like a, you know, modern, progressive, white woman was in what ways is this helpful to us to try to eliminate distinction? And in what ways is it like a white person saying, I don't see race? Yes. Like, is there really no longer slave or free? Like, are you going to do the work to upend slavery or are you just going to say, I don't see your difference? To me, that's really interesting on the one hand, because now I think what Paul is saying is... You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or the CEO of the bank or, you know, whatever it is. When we are together as a community, you treat one another as equals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, on the one hand, there's a really beautiful ethic that is there. Absolutely. Yes. And on the other hand, Paul does not seem to have been someone who was, you know, like an abolitionist Mm -hmm. or or a women's rights advocate who was trying Mm -hmm. to, like, overturn the systems of slavery. He he was perfectly happy to say, when you go home, (laughs) you're Mm -hmm. like, you're still a slave and you're still a CEO. Mm -hmm. But when we come here, we're not going to treat each other that way. Yeah. And we don't invite those social categories into our life of faith. Yeah. Like, or... I shouldn't say social categories, status differences. We don't invite those status differences in. So I'm just trying to think about like, like how do we take what's good from what Paul has said here and yet Mm -hmm. keep the edge of like, but there are cultural differences that are beautiful and wonderful and great Mm -hmm. and cultural differences that play out in systems of injustice. You know, in some ways it's making me think of a passage we read last week that it it just doesn't, it's hard for my little Jewish brain to hold on to, but this idea that... I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Mm -hmm. Like this idea that the individual and everything about the individual, all the particularities are not important and we are just vessels for God in the world. Yeah. And it's so funny when I think about that. On the one hand, like that's that's a really beautiful idea. And I certainly have said many prayers to, to be a vessel for God in the world. And I also will go back to like, there is something in particular about inhabiting the world in a body and in yeah. the, the one body that we have, we each get one, you yeah. know? And and so I wouldn't want to, like on the one hand, I don't want to, I appreciate that Paul is not trying to like reify the systems that come from distinguishing different things between our bodies, because that seems like, you know, really not the point. And also I think you can, you know, as you we're suggesting can go too far to say that the body doesn't matter at all is 
silly. Yeah. You know, the bodies that we have have a tremendous amount with our our experiences in the world and our experiences of God in the world and our experience of justice or injustice and our power or lack of power. And so it, it seems like it is something easy for a person of relative privilege to say that none of this matters and I don't see it. <laughs> yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not there. I appreciate you're connecting that back to the Christ who lives in me. And in some ways, like I I think I connect to this image of clothing more than that image mm-hmm, of Christ mm-hmm. living in me. Because I think mm-hmm. you're right. That can easily be taken as Christ has displaced me. Mm-hmm. Whereas this reads a little more like I'm still me, mm-hmm. but I, I have on like the clothing of Christ. So you can I'm still recognizably myself. Yeah. But and I am like my clothing reminds you that I am also a child of God or something Mm -hmm. like that. I'm also Mm -hmm. a baptized person. And so you treat me as both of those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. I'm not quite sure I've got that all the way worked out in my own head, but I kind of like that idea of being able to recognize both the the identity of the person as a person and also their status as belonging to this community that I also belong to. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, Amy, that brings us to the part of our conversation where we talk about where do you think this text intersects with contemporary life? What what should we be thinking about as we interpret it for today? So where have you come? You know, reading the text last week and the text this week has me thinking about the moment at which like an ideal or sort of like a mission statement, a belief transforms from just a shared belief or a community of people who holds on to that idea into an official movement that has to have like a platform or some requirements or some statement of how that belief should be enacted in the world. That is a complicated transition. I mean, it specifically had me thinking about Black Lives Matter as an idea and then Black Lives Matter as an official platform yeah. that came, you know, out of that idea and all of the the associated issues that sort of got roped into it. So I will say that within the Jewish community, broadly speaking, I have found there to be tremendous support for the idea that Black Lives Matter. And also the platform of the group Black Lives Matter made a statement about the relationship between uh, Israelis and Palestinians that for some Jewish people was not acceptable. Yeah. And so then there was a question of, well, what do we do now? (laughs) Yeah. You know, like we believe in the mission of the organization overall. We believe in the idea. And to support it now, do we have to support every part of the platform? And I mean, this is the moment that I'm picturing Paul in. Like he's got these communities of people that have this general shared belief in Jesus. And there is a question of how they're going to how they're going to work out the details and when they can compromise on some of their ideas, when they can be in community with people that they don't share 100% of their ideas with. Yeah. And when they need to adapt some kind of stance of like, quote unquote, purity, where everyone needs to be completely aligned, you know, on a sort of platform of beliefs, a whole compendium of beliefs and sort of how exactly that's going to play out. And it's I wish we could stay in the moment of uh, of mm-hmm. shared belief, yeah, where everyone sort of figures out what that belief is going to look like for them. But still, now, especially you know, relating to to justice work and political work, it gets complicated very quickly. And so, so that so I, this is this is the moment of complication in our text. But I think there are a lot of parallels to how we think about shared belief and shared mission across diverse groups today. Yeah. 
Where is this text taking you today in our world? I'm really drawn to this last line about no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. And I mean, which is really motivating this whole text about what Paul sees as cultural identity markers and where Paul really wants to end up is your Christian identity is the most important of the identities, talking internally to the Christian church, not thinking about who's out, who's out there, but when we come together as a community, what matters is Christ, not the particular things that we come with us. And I was just, I've been thinking about all the things that, you know, people bring into our faith communities today that sort of separate us out, you know, and the list is long and complicated, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so you might think about like, you know, churches that are wealthy and churches that are poor and churches that are liberal and churches that are conservative and, you know, churches that lean democratic and churches that lean Republican, churches that are American and churches that are two thirds world, you know, like mm-hmm. there are all these distinctions that, that we bring with us and thinking as a Christian among Christians, like when we think about the world and how we inhabit the world and what do we choose to care about, which identity is the one that motivates us? And so I think about things like, you know, the the border crisis, people who are refugees trying to come across the border. And many churches, our response is, we're American, they're not American. And so like, they need to go back where they came from or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, like fair enough if you're thinking as an American, but if you're thinking as a Christian and if you take Paul seriously, then what you would be, I think, where you would have to end up is... There is no longer American and Latin American or however you want to talk about those categories. Mm -hmm. There are only people in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so the first move would be to say like our Christian kinfolk who are from other places, like they're still our Christian kinfolk. And so it is incumbent upon us in some way or another to make sure that they're fully cared for, whether that means, you know, bringing them into our culture and taking care of them here or whether it means improving conditions there, whatever it is, like those are our people Mm -hmm. and we need to care for our people. And, you know, then there's a step beyond that, which is, and also Christ calls yeah, yeah, us to yeah. care for people who are not our people, right? But but that's the first move. And yet we so often are starting from another identity. Mm-hmm. I'm an American and you're not. I'm wealthy and you are on welfare. You know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, like, I don't care about you because. Mm-hmm. And I think where this text is trying to help us think is the first thing we should encounter internal to our faith community, like our global faith community is people who are also part of that faith community. That's their first identity. That is how we relate to them. And therefore, they're our kinfolk. And like to me, that's a real challenge. And, mm-hmm. and also, I think a really beautiful idea that I, that I, that I want to try to embrace more. And the first step of recognizing our common, in this case, our common Christianity, I think it's not a far step to say our common humanity, is like that's so crucial and the starting point for, for everything else. No, I love that. And starting with that as as the goal and knowing that it's going <laughs> to it's hard to get there. Yeah. But if if people can agree that that should be a goal, there should be spaces where there's not one way of being that has more power than another is a good and lofty goal. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, we have one more week together next week. For we this should just have a pizza party. <laughs> season of Bioworm. <laughs> Yeah, next week we're going to be in the Pentecost text, a little bit in Acts chapter 2. And then I don't quite know what we're going to do next week, but it's going to be somewhere in Galatians 4 and or 5. With pizza. With pizza. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Have a good one. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks 
for joining us for this episode of Bible Worm. If you'd like to hear the rest of our conversation about this text, join our Patreon at the Extended Worm level or higher to get access to extended episodes. You'll also find other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more, starting at just $4 per month. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are so grateful to all of our supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next week as we finish up the narrative lectionary season with the Pentecost text, Acts 2, 1-4, and Galatians 5, 16-26. Until then, keep on digging.